celebrating the arrival of Jesus is prime opportunity for us as a church. It's an opportunity to gather around the manger and behold the newborn king, to celebrate him and to worship the one who is called God with us, to adore the one born to a virgin, to bow down before the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we're still going to do that together, but this time through the book of Ruth. In a very real way, the Holy Spirit through this story has given me a deeper expectation and longing and excitement to celebrate Jesus' birth than I think I've ever experienced. It even, it even led to, I tend to be a grouch when it comes to Christmas decorations, and it even led to being excited about putting Christmas decorations up, not, not just for the joy of the decorations, but the anticipation for celebrating Christ and his coming. And I don't lead with that as a sort of expectation for you that Ruth is just going to be so thrilling that you will be amped for Christmas. But I do, I do share that to encourage you to give yourself a shot at seeing Christmas in a fresh light through these chapters. I was not expecting in the last few months a book that never mentions Jesus' name to fill me with such hope. But friends, that's what this book is here for. The story in your Bible entitled Ruth has more to do with the arrival of Jesus and the sustaining of your hope in a broken world than you might expect. I mentioned last week that if you took the book of Ruth out of the story of the Bible, just a few hundred words, humanly speaking, there would be no baby Jesus to speak of. So it's very important for sustaining our hope and for us looking at and expecting for Jesus not only to have come the first time, but to return again to us. And let me be clear as we start this out, it's not my job to sell you something. I'm not here to advertise on the 10 reasons why you should hop on board with the Advent series in Ruth. Rather, as one of your pastors, it's my joy to be a part of prayerfully asking our Father what might serve this church in this stage of its life, to ask God how we can feed on Christ through His Word, to call upon the Spirit to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus. And also, church, it's my joy to invite you to consider that Ruth is a beautiful story. And it's a beautiful story insofar as it reveals to you your God and how he rescues our floundering hope by giving and keeping his promise to give us his son as the savior and king of the world. So before we start this book, here's, here's how we can sum it up. The purpose of Ruth is to prove God's faithfulness to his chosen people as he fills Naomi's, Israel's, and our emptiness with the hope of the long-expected Jesus. The purpose of Ruth is to prove God's faithfulness to his chosen people as he fills Naomi's, Israel's, and our emptiness with the hope of the long-expected Jesus. I'm sure there are a million better ways to sum up the book of Ruth, but that's what we're running with during this Advent season because we want to look at Ruth Almost with one eye, we want to look at Ruth, and with the other eye, look at Jesus. 
and his coming and, and put them side by side, maybe in a way that we haven't before. And that's not simply to be creative. It's, it's to prove that we fully believe that this whole Bible is a lead up to Christmas and the coming of Christ and his sacrifice for us, his resurrection, his, his taking the Father's rule and authority into and taking his place at the Father's right hand. It's all a lead up. So it's about emptiness being filled with hope of the long expected Jesus. Now kids, I haven't forgotten you yet. Kids, you have been probably in this position before where you've been so hungry that your stomach had a voice. Your stomach started talking to you and everybody else around you. Maybe before you ate Thanksgiving, you skipped lunch. So your belly just comes alive. The only thing that's going to make it stop is food. You can't just pat it and make it go away. Sometimes we wish it wasn't making noise, but you need food. The story of Ruth is about people who are starving. In fact, it's about all of us who are starving. We're hungry, not just for food, but for someone to rescue us and make the grumbling and the groaning and the pain stop. I know it's hard to imagine being a different kind of hungry, but see if you can find out what that means. Just two points this morning. The first is the worst kind of famine. The story of Ruth starts with a famine, but that story of famine really starts with the story of Judges. Right in verse 1 of Ruth, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So apparently this took place during when the judges were ruling in Israel. After Moses and even Joshua disappeared from the scene, then you get to the judges. But this isn't just kind of like telling you the time frame. It's telling us what kind of time was it when the judges ruled. Okay, I know that there was a specific point in Israel's history where they had judges, but what was it like? Well, this intersection between Judges and Ruth is one of the most hopeless places in the Bible. Why? Because the end of Judges is absolutely horrific. The whole point of the book of Judges is to so show that God's people are stuck. They're stuck in this vicious cycle of sin and enslavement and deliverance by these men and women called judges. So they, they sin, they find themselves captive, and these judges come and, and that are sent by God to come and rescue them and put them back in a place where they're stable. But it's actually less of a cycle, and it's more of a downward spiral. God becomes an accessory to his people. They forget him. They forget that they were slaves in Egypt and that God had rescued them and cleaned them. He established a covenant with them as a ruler would his subjects, and he led them out of slavery and into the promised land where he was going to dwell with them. But four of the last five chapters of Judges have this statement in them. There was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. Remember, this is a downward spiral, and each, each of those chapters kind of repeats this. 
And that doesn't mean that they just need a king to solve their problems. It meant that God was no longer acting as their king. It means that they had turned from him and that God had released them to essentially destroy themselves. This is a spiritual desert where there was no king. Here's how the last couple chapters in Judges go. Just a refresher in case, in case we haven't visited there in a while. I know it was, it was a refresher for me. In chapter 17, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah. Keep, keep that in mind. Bethlehem in Judah. He was a Levite, which means his tribe was set aside to be God's priest. But this guy is looking for work. So he becomes a man's personal priest to a carved idol of some false god. He's pretty excited because it pays well. Then in chapter 18, some men from the tribe of Dan, who had yet to settle on some land in the promised land, take this Levite and this man's idol because they thought they were essentially like good luck. And they finally settled on some land that God had promised them. But here they were holding on to this idol and thinking that some other God was responsible for their good favor. The people of God had become godless and had forgotten that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was their true Savior. Then in chapter 19, there was another Levite man who was traveling and took for himself a woman from where? Bethlehem in Judah as, a, as his concubine. While he was traveling through the tribe of Benjamin, he stays at a man's house. And the men of the town, just like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, threatened to sexually assault this Levite. As a trade or self-protection or whatever it might be, the Levite hands over his concubine to the men of the town and she is raped to death. She is left at the doorstep of the house where the Levite is staying. To make a point and to show the wrong that had been done, this Levite takes that woman's body and he cuts it in pieces and he sends it to each of the tribes of Israel. And that's where you and I start thinking, what on earth? It's horrific. It's dark. It's unspeakably wicked. And this, this isn't some... NCIS episode. This is God's word, and you're wondering, why? I come to the Bible for solace, not for nauseating stories, right? Couldn't we skip over this part? We have to understand how bad things were in order to know why Ruth is in our Bibles. This display by this Levite sparks civil war in chapter 20 where the rest of Israel destroys most of the perpetrating people of Benjamin. When, the, when they wonder what in the world they had done by leaving their brothers without any wives or families or descendants in chapter 21, they set up a way for the surviving men to go abduct young women at an annual feast to take as their wives. And that's the last chapter of Judges. That's where Judges ends. And that is awful. Now... That final verse in Judges makes a bit more sense. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
You see the depth of what we as sinful people are capable of. And it's not pretty. It's actually kind of gut-wrenching to even just kind of, like I just summarized it. That wasn't all the detail. To know somehow this is God's inspired word for us. But he wants to press home the fact that everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there is no sign of things getting better. That was a lot of storytelling just for a little bit, so let's, let's take a breather. Is this how we're starting Advent? We lit a candle, immediately sparks in our minds the joy of Christmas and the wonder of Christ coming to earth. When the Christmas music starts playing, the air gets nice and crisp, and we have a Thanksgiving meal as a family or as friends. It starts to feel like Jesus is a happy addition to the fun. But let me remind you that our brokenness without God is where God inserted a baby boy who would become our Savior. And that's what the bleakness of Judges is for. It's to show us what God chose to do with the hopelessness and what God chose to do with our deep need. Judges is a snapshot of life in a world that hates God. It might have a beautiful shell. Israel might have said all day long that we're the people of God, but inside it's chaotic, it's violent, careless, and it's also starving to death. And the book screams, if God doesn't turn things around, then it's a wash. Again, that's how things were when Jesus came. And when he did, he wasn't just a pleasant surprise. He was a burst of white light into a world that was full of death and darkness. A world lost in sin and bound for the wrath of God. He was not just a treat that sweetens the season he is the light of the world who opens our eyes to, the, to his glory and who shows us what God is like. He even told this to us, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Part of our purpose this morning is to worship him for even mercifully showing up. Let's not take for granted that the light of the world wasn't always here. He arrived, and with him came hope for us being rescued. Ruth starts during these awful days of the judges, and they're not too different than the days before an angel shows up to talk to Mary. Not only is all that going on in Judges, but there's a real famine happening. But if we take a closer look, there's actually some level of explanation for the famine. A failed harvest means no food. But it's even worse than just no food. Back in Deuteronomy 28, God promised that if his people were faithful to him, that he'd bless them and their land and their children. But he also warns them in Deuteronomy 28, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you 
Some of those curses include things like this. You shall carry much seed into the field and gather little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, and you shall neither drink of the wine nor the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all of your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. I was told this once, and it has stuck with me, so I'll share it with you. The land of Israel is a thermometer for the spiritual health of the people of God. In his design for his covenant with the people of Israel, the people and the land are tied together in such a way that their obedience and faithfulness looks like a land flowing with milk and honey. And their wandering and their disobedience looks something like famine. So, rather than a useless detail, the famine at the beginning of Ruth is just proof positive of how bad things really were in Israel. So bad that the land itself was choked out and could not produce. And it's at this point that we meet a man named Elimelech. Elimelech was from where? Bethlehem in Judah. And before you start thinking baby in a manger, do you remember Bethlehem and Judah from Judges? That's where the Levite was from, who became the priest of this idol god, and that's where the second Levite took his concubine from. At this point, Bethlehem and Judah is not good news. It carries with it a sense of foreboding. Oh, this guy is from Bethlehem. I've got a bad feeling that something bad is going to happen. Elimelech with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons have to get out of this famine-stricken land and get some food. And they end up in a place called Moab. A quick side note, and this, this might sound cruel at first, they're starving. But was leaving the promised land the right thing to do? If the famine is a reflection of their wickedness, Scripture is clear that the call for Elimelech, his family, and the nation of Israel is to wake up and repent so that God could do what Second Chronicles 7 says, forgive them and heal their land. But instead, they run. And I'll be the first to admit that I would rather run than face my wrongs. I would rather avoid my brokenness and failures and sin than come before my God or my brother or my wife or my kids or my friends and say, I'm wrong, and it's obvious, and I need your forgiveness. And we're all hesitant, even though God promises to forgive those who confess to Him and bring their worst before Him, and give grace to those who humble themselves to confess to others. I don't think, again, that it's a useless detail that Elimelech leaves. It seems that he's avoiding the issue that he and his fellow Israelites refuse to address, and he heads for Moab. Who knows about Moab? Do you recognize that name? And we're just, we're just riding the train here further and further down. Genesis 19 tells the story of Lot fleeing from Sodom and with, his, with him his wife and daughters who were betrothed. Lot's wife, as you know, was turned into a pillar of salt and his daughters left their husbands to be behind. So, since Lot had no male descendants... His daughters tricked Lot into getting them pregnant. And the first boy born to the oldest daughter was named Moab. So, 
This place had its history in incest and also unfriendliness towards Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 is where God gives Israel strict instructions about the people from Moab. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. This is not where Elimelech and his family should be. Nonetheless, his sons take wives. The first son, Malon, marries the Moabite woman named Ruth. The second son, Killian, marries a Moabite woman named Orpah. In the modified words of Porky the pig, that's not all, folks. You can assume at this point that if it can be worse, it will be. As Naomi, the wife of Elimelech and the mother of these two men, finds herself in the depths of Ruth 1, 1 through 5. And it's not long before we find out in verse 3 and verse 5 that all three of her providers and her protectors die. And she is left as a widow with two daughters-in-law from the wicked nation of Moab. Trying to put yourself in Naomi's shoes, she is destitute. Her life has been stripped away from her. She has nothing. They're homeless. Israel is starving and in shambles. The author of Ruth, in so many words, is telling us all is lost. What, is, what are we to make of this? I've talked a lot about Israel and Moab and Deuteronomy and all sorts of things, but you might be wondering what it all has to do with you. This does have a connection to the coming of Jesus into a world that is starving for someone to come and deliver us. But it also shows us how God chooses to consistently respond when we're running low on hope. Have you ever been in that position where your hope in Jesus is depleted? Have you ever found yourself crying out for someone to come fix things? Maybe it's a relationship that seems like it will never get better. Maybe it's an unexpected downturn in circumstances. Maybe you just experienced a straw that broke the back of your confidence in God to take care of you. The question then is raised, what kind of God is your God as proven in Ruth? What kind of God is He, not just for Israel, not just for Naomi, but for me right now? Is He the one who is weakened when the world seems upside down? When you're anxious to your core, is He trembling too? When you feel mentally or physically incapacitated, is He also when you feel like you're at the breaking point, is he ready to break? Has he given up? When your confidence in a God-fearing country, for example, dwindles, is he limited? Church, this is a moment where we can gladly say, God is not like us. He is not limited. He is not trembling. 
He is not incapacitated by the situation. How do we know, though? How do we know? How do we know that he's not someone who just abandons the plan? Does he leave Israel without a king, Naomi without hope, and us starving for a savior? No. He is God who is steadily making promises to his people, steadily keeping our hope alive. And all of those promises and all of that hope is yes and amen and fulfilled in Jesus, which leads us to the second point, satisfying hope. As I said earlier, here's the whole point of the book of Ruth. The purpose of Ruth is to prove God's faithfulness to his chosen people as he fills Naomi's, Israel's, and our emptiness with the hope of the long-expected Jesus. Most of the story, after chapter 1, takes place in the town of Bethlehem. And in this town, God is going to prove that he hasn't abandoned his rescue mission, even though all seems lost. It's in this town and in this story where God will take Israel and give it its first upturn in hope by bringing them a king, King David, who is Ruth's great-grandson. Finally, a king. And a king who loves God at that, compared to everyone doing what was right in his own eyes and judges. But at this point, we're not seeing a whole lot of hope in these first five verses of Ruth. I just took you to the very end, the very good news about Ruth, that King David comes. But if we dig just a little bit into our Bibles, there's something worth our attention here. And I want to go back to that in verse 2. It says, They... Elimelech's family, were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now we already said that this was not good news. They're from the place called Bethlehem in Judah, which is associated with all kinds of bad stuff in Judges. When it says they're Ephrathites, that just means they were from this particular clan or family in Bethlehem. So it's specifying even further who these people are. They're from Bethlehem in Judah, but they're Ephrathites. There's nothing necessarily hidden here. All I want us to do this morning is say to ourselves, okay, I don't know much about Ephrathites from Bethlehem and what that means, but does my Bible use that title anywhere else? It does as a location marker a few times, just getting our geography straight in Genesis, but one of the only other places is Micah 5. Turn with me to Micah 5, verse 1, if you still have your Bibles with you. Micah chapter 5. It's one of those little prophets. Micah 5, starting in verse 1. Ruth is is about God acting and moving his plan forward in this dark moment. But we, we just have to remember that God is a promising God. He speaks into that darkness with precious and very great promises that his people essentially live off of. We live off of those promises like food as they carry us through this life. So in Micah, the southern kingdom of God's people, Judah is about to be invaded and go into exile here. And the prophet is warning them to return to the Lord. This is kind of one of the last calls. Last call, people of Judah, return to the Lord. And here is what the Lord says to his rebellious people on the brink of another dark moment in their history. 
Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel in the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore God shall give Judah up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, this ruler, shall stand and shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. From Naomi's hometown and the place where the story of Ruth plays out will come this ruler. That's no accident, friends, and that's where we can count on our Bibles being a unified story. God is leaving a crumb trail for whoever is coming to Ruth hungry. If you follow that crumb trail, you'll get to King David first, which will lead you to Jesus. Micah's promise is about the long-expected Jesus. Before you go into exile, Judah, here's a promise to you. I'm going to raise up a king from you who is God himself. He's from of old, and he will shepherd you in the strength of God. He will be your peace as his greatness spreads across the earth. That's one of the many reasons why it's a huge deal that Gabriel tells Mary, you're going to have a son. That son's given name would be Jesus, but he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He is going to save. He's going to bring God's rule and peace to the earth. He is the one who Micah was talking about. Christmas is about a world starving for a savior and how a gracious and merciful God fills our bellies with exactly what we hope for. Let this morning also remind you that God does not abandon ship. He will not let his plans fall to anyone or anything, even in the darkest moment in Judges and the start of Ruth. Ruth is what I like to call a bottleneck in the Bible. It's where the situation is so dire and the hope is so slim that there's one option. God has to do something in his might and in his mercy because we're out of options. Church, aren't you so glad that he did do something, that he sent his son to you? Some other important applications or lessons from Ruth as we close this morning. Whether you realize it or not, you need hope. Some of you are thinking, I don't need to be told this morning that I need hope. You might be in a spot where you're saying, when will things ever get better? Or you're saying, God, just give me some sign that you're here. You need hope and not just ambiguous hope, hope that is found in Jesus alone. And I pray you find it here in Ruth. Hope for what feels like a purposeless life. Hope for your marriage. Hope for your life that is on a time limit. Hope for the perplexing situation regarding your adult child. Hope for your body. Hope for your weariness or grief. 
all based on a God who inserted himself into our story to give you a reason to trust that no matter how bad things are, he is in it. He is working. He's sustaining you. He loves you. He is strong. He did not look away when our world was in darkness. He came. And that brings hope. That is with us to stay. There's some in the room who, who may not feel that need. You may have been riding on nothing but good circumstances, a good family, a steady job all your life. Friend, you need hope more than you know because you need to put your feet on something that's far more firm and trustworthy than all of those things. You need the God of hope who will be there when whatever you're standing on crumbles or gives way like sand under your feet. When you look ahead, you need something more than your fingers crossed to know that all will be well. Instead, you need His promises. Things like, God works all things for good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's a much more firm foundation than something like job security. Second thing, God is the God of hope. Hope is looking forward to something with confidence that it will happen. And here in Ruth, we find a God who looked at his wretched and destitute people who needed a Savior, and he graciously filled their starving hearts with an expectation, a looking forward to days of salvation and restoration. And are you hungry for that in your own life? Do you want to know that if you trust God, that all things ultimately will be well? Because it seems like the only other option is to either carelessly wander through our 80 years or so, or to spend that time scared out of our minds about what's around the corner. There are times where you might wonder how committed God is to you as his child or us as his church. You might wonder whether he has a firm grasp on the situation you're in, whether he sees your plight, whether he knows exactly what you're walking through. I go to Romans 15 with you often, but mainly because I'm, I'm trying to throw myself on this reality in faith to trust what God is saying here. Romans 15 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He is not the God of letdowns or empty promises. He is the God of waiting, but not of endless waiting. He is not the God of pinky swear agreements. Instead, He is the God of real and resolute hope based on real and resolute commitments to save and dwell with us. He graciously brings hope where there is none because he is the God of hope. And that proves true, and I hope that continues to prove true as we study Ruth together.